lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special edition of The Steve Dace Show. That would be me alongside Aaron McIntyre and Todd Erzin. Let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. You can email the program, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook, MeWe, Parlor and Gab. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And if you're looking for clips of the show that are both free and then free of censorship, you'll find those at rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. That's rumble.com slash Steve Day Show. Today on the show, we are going to be focusing on one singular topic. And we're going to be using a column that was written earlier this year for Tablet Magazine by Lee Smith as the takeoff for this conversation, because it is one of the absolute best think pieces I have read in the last few years that wasn't written by Thomas Sowell or Angelo Codevilla. And that's about the highest praise that I'm capable of giving a contemporary American socio-political commentator. Before we get to this piece, though, I want to get kind of an elevator pitch level view of who is China? Who do we think they are? What are they actually? So let me start by asking you two, Todd and Aaron. Todd, I'll start with you. When When I say China... The first thing you think of is what? Liars. Why do you think that? Well, listen, this once China decided it wasn't just going to be communist oppressive China, but was going to be a world stage economic engine China. Uh, lying both to its own people and to the world has been part and parcel of how it was going to get there. It has lied about uh, civil rights. It is well before COVID. This is why it's so easy to believe that, yeah, it came from the Wuhan lab and they lied about it. And this has been a psyop from the very beginning. Do you know how often China has lied um, about copyright infringement uh, these many decades? Uh, it, it's a huge, huge problem. <laughs> so on any front, and it's important, that's not just one of many bad words. You go back to the very beginning uh, in our worldview. The devil is a consummate liar. This this is off the tracks from the very beginning. Uh, whatever uh, China is generally up to as a nation, because it is willing to propagandize anything and everything. Whatever one child policy. That's having too many children, too many mouths to feed. It's it. Treating people as locusts that need to be exterminated, that's not the problem. The state is the problem. But if the state has been anointed as the god, it has to lie about everything else. So I come back again. Liar. On a scale of 1 to 10, 
with one being as ineffectual, irrelevant as Lindsey Graham's Tinder account. And 10 being as fervent and zealous as Lindsey Graham's Burner Grinder account. Where would you say you were on China pre-COVID? Pre-COVID, I would say I was a seven. Wow. Okay. Where would you say you are now? Ten. So you view COVID as, oh, as as a fulfillment of what your your original read on China was. Yeah. Yes. And by obviously an order of of magnitude. As we that's a phrase we heard a little bit here in the last year and a half. But yeah. So this is this isn't this is just an escalation of your previous affirmation. Yes. Okay. And, and so you, China's just spinal tapped to you. This isn't like a revelation to you. This is just more, this is just the culmination of what you already thought. Yes. Okay. All right, Aaron. Same question to you. When I say China, you think what? Long game. Historically, that's what we've seen, and. Um, in, in more modern times, they've been able to play that long game. They've been able to essentially continue the dynasties through, through and via uh, communism that we see now, where there is no semblance of, of democracy. I mean, China would have broken into five, six, seven different places at any point over the last 150 to 200 years had they adopted some form of real democracy or democratic republicanism. Uh, but instead, no, they, they, they at least the, the leadership in that country, it is ingrained within them at a cultural, at a societal level that they are always playing the long game. And so when I think of China, I, I think of the long game and that where does the long game end? Well, it ends at the end game. Listen, Thanos in the in the Avengers uh, universe he was playing he was playing a pretty long game there and finally they got to the end game or he got to the end game and was able to uh, eventually achieve his goals now i don't know what china's goals are whether it's regional hegemony or global hegemony it certainly seems like right now we're not just at oh disputes over the south china sea we're making some fake islands here and there and uh, it's a little dispute they still suck at engineering they do they still suck at manufacturing their own stuff they do um but you know what they, it's just kind of their own regional thing right now yeah sure they um hong kong and all that stuff but you know what um it's not just to me anyway regional hegemony is not their goal anymore i think they're i think they're seeking global dominance at this point, I still think they're very fragile, but I think when I think of China, I think of the long game. And right now, I think what the long game they're playing is, uh, and what the end game of that long game is, is is global, if not hegemony, then dominance. Same question I just asked Todd. Scale of one to ten. One being as ineffectual and irrelevant as Lindsey Graham's Tinder account. Ten being as fervent and vibrant and aggressive as Lindsey Graham's burner grinder account. Where were you on China pre-COVID? I was at a six. Now I'm at a 10 uh, along with Todd. 
I was at a six because they were gaining on us economically. And I saw them mainly, chiefly as an economic threat, not a competitor. I saw them as a threat. So I was at a six because they were gaining on us. And so they're on the other side of the, of the dividing line there. Um, now they're at a 10. Whether or not the virus was a leak, whether or not it was some sort of crazy accident, or whether or not it was on purpose. The Chinese Communist Party quickly realized that they did have a weapon on their hand. I don't think that, th I don't think that can be debated at all. Have we seen anyone, anywhere on any place of the planet, other than a few people in Wuhan, China, back in January and, and February earlier uh, last year in 2020, did we see anyone anywhere else this entire time just dropping dead like flies on the street? Hmm. No. Whether or not it was an accident or something deliberately let out of that lab, the Chinese Communist Party quickly saw that it had an opportunity on its hand. And so that takes them way beyond global competitor, way beyond global um, economic competitor, economic foe, economic rivalry, and that takes them to, well, some, some version of the evil empire now. That's where I think we are with China. I would have said, I would have described them before COVID as a strategic rival or I guess maybe even nemesis. Meaning there was simply too much money to be made by both parties and every nation associated with both parties for us in China not to be doing business together on some level because the cost of not doing so would be costlier for us in the world than the cost of doing so. But understand, it's a little bit like we're the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference and they're the commissioner of the SEC, okay? I mean, we're enough of a rival to them that they know they can't just roll us, but don't turn your back on them either. The first chance they get to skirt NCAA rules or to ignore them altogether, buy players under the table, they're going to do all that, okay? So just be very self-aware about who you are in any form of a, of a strategic partnership with that's why i described it as a strategic rivalry or a strategic nemesis fair yeah okay now i would describe them as a muse i would describe them as an inspiration as a forerunner because it's very clear that the people ultimately in charge of this country, in both parties, to some degree, favor their form of society. It's very blatant on the Democratic side. But when you hear Republicans like Mitch McConnell say, if you don't get the job, you know, we're going to have more lockdowns. The, the idea that your freedom and liberty is not unalienable, but is sanctionable by the state. And that if you don't do what the state deems proper, regardless of what efficacy claims, data it presents, like there's no, there's no lemon test. There's nothing they have to do to show there is a justification for this request or demand. 
they just get to make it so. That is a Chinese impulse. That is the impulse that the Shycoms rule with. And in my opinion, I mean, hell, you had Warren Buffett's partner just come right out and say this a couple of months ago. In my opinion, the people that are making the most of the people making most of the decisions in this country at a, at a national level and most of the people making most of the financial decisions in this country at a national level would rather have us be closer to where China is now than where America was even in the 80s, let alone, you know, a pre-welfare state New Deal era like a Calvin Coolidge presidency in the 20s. And I know what that means. If, if I understand the, the ramifications of believing that. When I'm, because if I'm going to believe that, then I have to go to the next step, which is that I believe my liberty is more threatened by enemies domestic than foreign. I do not believe most of the people making most of the national decisions, both in the public and private sector in this country, have my best interest at heart or have any reverence or even healthy fear of trying to figure out how they can even navigate around the Constitution. In fact, I think those things are just all irrelevant to them. And I think that they would sell me up the river to do business more and more with the China if they could in less than five minutes. Please tell me what I just said is going too far and is too cynical. It does not, and it is not. Agreed. So I'm having a hard time mustering anger at China. That should not be the case. If, 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 here's the irony of the situation. If we were more reverential about our own foundations and, and traditions as a people, we would be having, holistically, we would be having and, and would need to be having an uncomfortable conversation about how we treat people who look like they're from Asian descent because that anger is boiling and spilling over, right? Yeah. We've seen that in the past. Now, we are having problems with Asian, with Asian hate crimes in the country, violence against Asians, but they're almost always from people of a, of, who are black in the inner city. This is not something that, uh, that there's unique tensions between Asians and African Americans within urban areas that have existed for decades, okay? Um, holistically, we don't have those issues in the country. That's not to say that we would be supportive of that, we would actually be one of the shows like pushing back on it. But, but that, is, that is a distortion of an outcome of a healthy society that you're so zealous to hold on to your identity as a people that you go too far in maintaining it. Fair? Yeah. And that's why we have laws. That's why we don't have, you know, we have, we have uh, you know, had to have discussions and debates and even wars in our country's history over protecting unprotected or lesser defended minorities. We're not even, it seems, tempted by that impulse. 
I, I don't know how many people want to really know outside of an audience like this, how many people really want to know what the true origins of the virus is and who's ultimately responsible for it as opposed to just want to move on from the whole damn thing. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's a rough ratio to contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's not when you, that's not then when you do the calculus of then adding in the people who affirmatively favor China more than the U.S. within our ranks. So I, I almost feel as if having anger or frustration about what China has done to us via this virus is, is a waste of my time. It's, it's barking at the moon, man. It's, it's tilting windmills. It's whistling past a graveyard. It's a waste of time. Nothing would be done. Because the reality also is that it's quite likely that this virus wasn't created in China by just the Chinese, but some of our own scientists working in, in association with yes. them. So I can't even work up some like good old-fashioned American, what's, what, when you move beyond patriotism to like overzealotry, what's that called? Jingoism, right? Okay. Sure. I can't even work up some good old-fashioned William Randolph Hearst sinking of the USS Maine, okay, um, uh, you know, v y jingoism. I can't even work, I, 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 would, I would like to be tempted by that. Because that would at least show that we're all collectively pissed off here and want to do something about this, right? I, I, I just, I, I, I'm not like struggling with that at all. Like I don't spend most of my day wondering why China did this to us. I spend most of my day wondering why Anthony Fauci did this to us and continues to do That's it. That's undeniably true. Why, why NIH and NIAID does this to us and continues to do it. You see what I'm saying? Oh, to make a... Another football analogy, what is the point of gaming for the other team's weaknesses, their scheme, their personnel, what have you, when your own locker room is an utter disaster? It'll go. You you could spend doing the best chalk talk ever on the on the enemy and how to defeat them, but with the the clown show over mm. on your side, yeah. It, it it doesn't resonate. They they hold you in contempt. You hold them in contempt. There's no there there. If so, if, like if the quarterback I start won't run the play, yeah, just goes yeah. to the line of scrimmage, calls an audible, it, and runs yeah. his own play. I put in another quarterback. They go to the line of scrimmage, call an audible, run. It doesn't matter who I put in the game. They run their own play, and it just so happens to be the play that the other side knows is coming. Yeah, yeah. So it aids and abets the other side, yes. the, the team we're supposed to be defeating. Why in the Sam Hill am I worked up and all fired up, but go out there and beat our rival? Yeah. Uh, we're up here beating ourselves just fine. We're scoring own goals with regularity, right? Yeah, we're in desperate need of a uh, gentleman. This is a football speech because we, we don't know and don't care what the game really is or we're playing a different game altogether, and which goes to the, my – my point about lying i you just asked me to identify china i take nothing away from that they're liars um but they're they're lying the kind of lies that can get over on a bunch of saps like us this brings us to the column we're going to be discussing on the show here today on this special edition it is written by lee smith it was written earlier this year for tablet magazine and it's called the 30 tyrants 
which is a historical reference that he'll get into here in this column. But the subtitle here, the deal that the American elite chose to make with China has a precedent in the history of Athens and Sparta. Let's, let's look at that subtitle here for the next few minutes from back to front. Where are the historical powers of Athens and Sparta today? Where are they? Non-existent. They don't exist. They're in a history book, right? So what does that at least imply about this deal that he's going to cite as the historical precedent for the deal that our elites have made? What's it at least imply? It didn't shake out. It didn't work. That even if it didn't directly lead to the decline and diminishment of these civilizations, it didn't also maintain their stability and dominance at the exact same time. And if there were any victories therein, they were ultimately Pyrrhic. Exactly. So it, it might not be a pivot point that we can go back and look to in the history of this era before Christ and say, yeah, that's clearly when things began to go downhill, but that it also didn't, it didn't work out in sustaining them as a people at the exact same time, right? Right. So already we're making... We're, we're making a reference to what's effectively a dead language historically. I mean, this is, this, 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 is, this is a historical lemon. It's a scam. This didn't work. That doesn't give you the rally around the flag warm fuzzy, does it? No. No, it doesn't. Let's go to the first part of this subtitle. The deal that the American elite chose... I find the use of that word mm -hmm. interesting. The deal that the American elite chose to make with China. What do you guys think that deal is? Aaron, what do you think the deal is that they chose to make? The deal, we basically trade our soul to you in exchange for... Uh, oodles of money that's ba it's just the classic selling your soul saw an opportunity in china for cheap labor cheap goods that they could then sell resell in uh, in a in a place that would pay a lot more for them than what they were truly worth and thereby enrich themselves i think that's i think that was the deal instead of seeing uh crap there's a homogenized a uh, group of, of people here on this continent that could be in 30, 40, 50 years, if they are not kept in check, even more of a threat than Russia or the Soviet Union ever was. I think that was the deal. That deal was absolutely based on greed, but there's uh, something even deeper in my estimation to this. It It allowed them to no longer have to be Americans. Yes. Mm -hmm. To seek out that yes. greed. Yes. Because in the past, based on our founding ideas, how this country was framed, they had to deal with us. Maybe they were lying to us this whole time about, hey, buy America, all that stuff. But it, it had to be about this entire team. And as Steve has laid out in all manner of issues before, uh, as it applies to Republican circles, how much they hate their own base. This elite, 
ultimately hated or at least did not care at the very least about their own base which is the american people their fellow citizen this untethered them from being americans they are now citizens of globalism and and that is the deal that they made see they thought the initial generation that cut this deal, late 80s, early 90s, the George H.W. Bush years, the most favored nation status years, they thought they were making the deal that Aaron articulated. The problem is when you dance with the devil, the hmm. devil don't change. He changes you. As the Bible puts it, bad company corrupts good character. They thought they were just getting cheap goods for lower wages, and therefore everybody makes money. Screw the unions. They're all Democrats anyway, right? We don't care about mm -hmm. them. Uh, let's put cheap goods in the hands of middle America, suburban America, and everybody gets a big screen TV now. Everybody's got a, a quadraphonic media display in their homes now. Everybody can afford it now. That was the deal, right? That's what they and, thought they were making that deal. That's the, that's the deal they thought they were making. And I'll be the first to admit, the all boats rise with the tide. I've yes. fallen prey to that manner of yes. thinking, the economic yep. engine, how it can lift up all peoples. Agree. So did I. Okay. But this is where we on the right have learned harshly. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is not a system, is not an elevating system. It doesn't make a pe people better. It's, it's a system that works within the confines of human nature. It's the worst form of economy, except for all the rest yes, of them, to but, but, if, but if bad people get, in hold, mm -hmm. get a hold of it, it becomes what you just articulated. And now we have another generation in charge of these corporate boardrooms now, and they've all become very accustomed to going to universities, heavily financed and donated to by Chinese communists. Pharaohs who know not Joseph? Is yes. this what you're talking about? Um, going to see movies that censor themselves and screen themselves for Chinese censorship. They just grew up accustomed to this. And, and they now have, frankly, more affinity for the values of, this, of the Chinese system than their own. They're, they have... It's devolved from, we went from a, just a generation of good old-fashioned Gordon Gecko-esque greed is good, even if it, no matter what language it's in and whether it comes in the yen or the dollar, amen, to now it is, ready for this? Power is good. And it doesn't matter if it comes from the yen, the dollar, or what language it's in. Power not just corrupts, it attracts. Power is, power is attracted to power. And now, a new generation in America's classrooms and boardrooms say, you know, we're better and smarter than you. The Chinese had it right. People as accomplished and successful as us should tell you what medicines you take, which ones you don't. What jabs you take, which ones you don't. Which businesses are essential, which ones are not. Look at the reaction we've had to COVID over the last year and a half from government. How would that be any different than what, hap what, what a Chinese government would do? It isn't. From, from Trump announcing 15 days to flatten the curve to whatever the same hell is going on now with vaccination mandates and everything else, 
other than China won't permit vaccine mandates at, at the time we're taping this show, which is ironic. But how would how would a government specifically communist like China's have responded any differently? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. In fact, you know where a lot of our mitigation notions and techniques and tactics came from. Do you know where they came from? China. These are the recommendations they gave us. You know, we're just all one big happy family here. The useless face diapers that they want you to wear on your face. Choke yourself out with. Choke yourself out with. Where are those made? You know? China. China. Yeah. And so we could at least push back on greed. Because invariably you can you can pit greedy people against each other. Hey, give it to me better, cheaper, faster. I'll go with this greedy person instead of you, right? How do you how do you push back on they just want power? And it doesn't matter now. That's where people feel helpless. They vote for a Trump. The mass protests that you've seen in Europe here in the last month. The sort of backlash that is building in our country right now as we speak. And where did this Faustian bargain where did it originate where did it come from what's his what's what is it what is its historical precedent we'll get into that when we get into this piece here in a moment this is steve dace on the blaze radio network Welcome back to a special edition of the Steve Dace Show here, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here alongside Totters and an Aaron McIntyre. Let's get into it then. You heard our little introduction to start off the show, a bit of a preamble, if you will. The name of this piece is called The 30 Tyrants. It's over at Tablet Magazine. It was published earlier this year. The author is Lee Smith, and I'm going to share this with you in its entirety. Because I think it's worth it. And then we will discuss it afterwards. I may even take a couple of pauses during it to discuss some points. Let us begin in chapter five of The Prince. I mean, this opening paragraph is going to grab you right by the throat. Okay, get ready. In chapter five of The Prince, Machiavelli describes three options for how a conquering power might best treat those it has defeated in war. The first is to ruin them. The second is to rule directly. The third is to create, quote, therein a state of the few which might keep it friendly to you. If that doesn't grab you, you ain't been paying attention to the last few years. The example Machiavelli gives of the last is the friendly government Sparta established in Athens upon defeating it after a 27 year after 27 years of war in 404 BC 
For the upper caste of an Athenian elite, already contemptuous of democracy, elites typically are, after all, they know better than you. They, get to, they, they, they should get to rule. You rubes can't think for yourselves. The city's defeat in the Peloponnesian War confirmed that Sparta's system was preferable. It was a high-spirited military aristocracy ruling over a permanent servant class, the helots, who were periodically slaughtered to condition them to accept their subhuman status. Athenian democracy, by contrast, gave too much power to the lowborn. The pro-Sparta oligarchy used their patrons' victory to undo the rights of citizens and settle scores with the domestic rivals, exiling and executing them, confiscating their wealth. The Athenian government, disloyal to Athens' laws and contemptuous of its traditions, was known as the Thirty Tyrants. And understanding its role and function helps explain what is happening in America today. For a previous column, I spoke with New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman about an article he wrote more than a decade ago during the first year of Barack Obama's presidency. His important piece documents the exact moment when the American elite decided that democracy wasn't working for them. Blaming the Republican Party for preventing them from running roughshod over the American public, they migrated to the Democratic Party in the hopes of strengthening their relationships that were making all of them rich. A trade consultant told Friedman, quote, The need to compete in a globalized world has forced the meritocracy, the multinational corporate manager, the Eastern financier and the technology entrepreneur to reconsider what the Republican Party has to offer. In principle, they have left the party, leaving behind not a pragmatic coalition, but a group of ideological naysayers, end quote. These are your Max Boots. A lot of what we now know of the Lincoln Project, this group, is who he's describing. It's why, since Barack Obama in 2008, Democrats have actually won the wealthiest of Americans in elections. In the more than 10 years since Friedman's column was published, the disenchanted elite that the Times columnist identified has further impoverished American workers while enriching themselves. The one-word motto they came to live by was globalism. That is, the freedom to structure commercial relationships and social enterprises without reference to the well-being of the particular society in which they happen to make their livings and raise their children. Todd is already over here nodding his head yes, and we're barely getting into this piece. Undergirding the globalist enterprise was China's essential... I'm sorry, China's addition to the World Trade Organization in 2001. For decades, American policymakers in the corporate class said that they saw China as a rival. But the elite that Friedman described saw enlightened Chinese autocracy as a friend and even a model, which was not surprising, given that the Chinese Communist Party became their source of power, wealth, and prestige. Why did they trade with an authoritarian regime and send millions of Americans manufacturing jobs off to China, thereby impoverishing working Americans? Because it made them rich. They solved their consciences by telling themselves they had no choice but to deal with China. It was big, productive, and efficient, and its rise was inevitable. 
And besides, the American workers hurt by the deal deserved to be punished. Who could defend a class of reactionary and racist ideological naysayers standing in the way of what was best for progress? Returning those jobs to America, along with ending foreign wars and illegal immigration, was the core policy promise of Donald Trump's presidency and the source of his surprise victory in 2016. Trump was hardly the first to make the case that the corporate and political establishment's trade relationship with China had sold out ordinary Americans. Former Democratic congressman and 1988 presidential candidate Richard Gephardt was the leading voice in an important but finally not very influential group of elected Democrat Party officials and policy experts who warned that trading with the state that employed slave labor would cost American jobs and sacrifice American honor. The only people who took Trump seriously were the 60 million American voters who believed when he said he'd fight for the elites to get those jobs back, he meant it. What he called the swamp appeared at first to just be random assortments of industries, institutions, and personalities that seemed to have nothing in common outside of the fact they were excoriated by the new president. But Trump's incessant attacks on that elite gave them collective self-awareness, as well as a powerful motive for solidarity. Together, they saw that they represented a nexus of public and private sector interests that shared not only the same prejudices and hatreds of you, same cultural taste and consumer habits, but also the same center of gravity, the U.S.-China relationship. And so... The China class was born. Connections that might have once seemed tenuous or non-existent now became lucid under the light of Trump's scorn and the reciprocal scorn of the elite that loathed him because they loathe you. A decade ago, no one would have put NBA superstar LeBron James and Apple CEO Tim Cook in the same family album. But here they are now linked by their fantastic wealth owing to cheap Chinese manufacturing, whether it's Nike sneakers or iPhones, and a growing Chinese consumer market. The NBA's $1.5 billion with a B contract with digital service provider Tencent made the Chinese firm the league's biggest partner outside America. In gratitude, these two-way ambassadors shared the wisdom of the Communist Chinese Party with their ignorant countrymen. After an NBA executive tweeted in defense of Hong Kong dissidents, social justice activist King LeBron told Americans to watch their tongues. Even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, said James, it can be a lot of negative that comes with that. Because of Trump's pressure on the Americans who benefited extravagantly from the U.S.-China relationship, these strange bedfellows acquired what Marxists call class consciousness and join together to fight back, further cementing their relationships with their Chinese patrons. Until now, these disparate American institutions lost any sense of circumspection or shame about cashing checks from the Chinese Communist Party, no matter what horrors the CCP visited on the prisoners of its slave labor camps, and no matter what threat Chinese spy services and the People's Liberation Army might pose to national security. Think tanks and research institutions, remember these names, folks, like the Atlantic Council, the Center for American Progress, 
the East-West Institute, the Carter Center, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and others gorged themselves on Chinese money. The world-famous Brookings Institution had no scruples about publishing a report funded by Chinese telecom company Huawei that praised Huawei technology. The billions that China gave to major American research institutions, like $58 million to Stanford, alarmed U.S. law enforcement, which warned of Chinese counterintelligence efforts to steal sensitive research. But the schools and their named faculty were, in fact, in the business of selling that research, much of it paid for directly by the U.S. government, which is why Harvard and Yale, among other big-name schools, appeared to have systematically underreported the large amounts that China had gifted them. Indeed, many of academia's pay-for-play deals with the CCP were not particularly subtle. In June of 2020, a Harvard professor who received a research grant of $15 million in taxpayer money was indicted for lying about his $50,000 per month work on behalf of a CCP institution to, quote, recruit and cultivate high-level scientific talent in furtherance of China's scientific development, economic prosperity, and national security. End quote. We had a word for such people once. They were called spies. But if Donald Trump saw decoupling the United States from China as a way to dismantle the oligarchy that hated him and sent American jobs abroad, he couldn't follow through on the vision. After correctly identifying the sources of corruption in our elite, the reasons for the impoverishment of the middle classes, and the threats foreign and domestic to our peace. He failed to staff and prepare to win the war he asked Americans to elect him to fight. And because it was true that China was the source of the Chinese, of the China class's power, the novel coronavirus coming out of Wuhan became the platform for its coup de grace. So Americans became prey to an anti-democratic elite that used the coronavirus to demoralize them, lay waste to small business, leave them vulnerable to rioters who are free to steal, burn, and kill, keep their children from school and the dying from the last embrace of their loved ones, and desecrate American history, culture, and society, and defame the country as systematically racist in order to furnish the predicate for why ordinary Americans, in fact, deserved the hell that the elite's private and public sector proxies had already prepared for them. For nearly a year, American officials have purposefully laid waste to our economy and society for the sole purpose of arrogating more power to themselves while the Chinese economy has gained on America's. China's lockdowns had nothing to do with the difference in outcomes. Lockdowns are not public health measures to reduce the spread of a virus. They are political instruments which is why Democratic Party officials who put their constituents under repeated lengthy lockdowns like New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot are signaling publicly that it is imperative they be allowed to reopen immediately now that Trump is safely gone. The Demo- that, that Democratic officials intentionally destroyed lives and ended thousands of them by sending the ill to infect the elderly in nursing homes is irrelevant to America's version of the 30 tyrants. 
The job was to boost coronavirus casualties in order to defeat Trump, and they succeeded. As with Athens' anti-democratic faction, America's best and brightest long ago lost its way. At the head of the 30 tyrants was Critias, one of Socrates' best students, a poet and a dramatist. He may have helped save Socrates from the regime's wrath, and yet the philosopher appears to have regretted that his method to question everything fed Critias's sweeping disdain for tradition. Once in power, Critias turned his nihilism on Athens and destroyed the city. The poison embraced between American elites and China began nearly 50 years ago when Henry Kissinger saw that opening relations between the two enemies would expose the growing rift between China and the more threatening Soviet Union. At the heart of the fallout between the two communist giants was the Soviet leadership's rejection of Stalin, which the Chinese would see as the beginning of the end of the Soviet communist system. And thus it was a mistake they wouldn't make. We'll continue there here next hour. But for now, your thoughts, gentlemen. Well, first of all, obviously, hail Hydra. Secondly, you'll remember back during those quaint days when we used to talk about the wisdom, the efficacy, what have you, about Trump's use of tariffs with China. Remember how innocent those days were? Mm. But I had... How I thought we were still doing actual economic uh, theory well, and... Oh, and and understanding the, uh, the the traditional business practices and rules of engagement, yeah. like the naive fool I turned out to be after the fact. Yes, I remember those days. Well, well my point always about that is it was it was Trump isn't an economist, and that was never about uh, econo- making an economic argument. In it. it was always about throwing China off balance. That Trump saw the game was stupid. It wasn't beneficial to America. And he wanted to throw them off balance, irritate them, uh, and bring them back to a table that was more to his advantage. Art of the deal. It was actually one of his best art of the deal plays on the front end and I, I, uh, that, that he accomplished. But he, here's the part of it that he didn't truly appreciate as one of the King Kongs of New York. It definitely threw them, China, off balance. But it threw off... The 30 tyrants in America way off balance as well. And we really, and I had no, I had no idea how existential the argument I was making at the time about why this was an important game. It was obviously way more important than I even thought. So important to our enemies within that they had to crush Trump so much so that the lives of their fellow Americans were forfeit in accomplishing that goal. I can't remember prior to to Trump, and maybe it's just recency bias. I I, I want to be conscious uh, conscious, I should say, of, of that. I don't re- recall so much in the um, years leading up to Trump's ascendancy stories about athletes, pop culture figures, kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party. Now things are starting to make a little bit more sense because we have story after story, year after year. Of that. Now it's starting to make a little bit more sense, isn't it? We'll come back more in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. 
lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And we are back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV radio podcast. Steve Dace here with Totters and Aaron McIntyre. All of you, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, and Gab. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And don't forget, if you want clips of the show for free, you're going to find them at rumble.com slash Steve Day Show. And you want to go there and not that other website because that's how you'll avoid the censorship. Rumble.com slash Steve Day Show. And finally, if you're a podcast listener, leave us a five-star review, please, and hit subscribe or follow, whichever is the is what they use on your podcast platform. Uh, the more of you do, that do that, the more you help the show to grow. So many of you have done this already. Thank you very much. You have more than done your part uh, to elevate our show with explosive growth in the last year and a half. We cannot thank you enough. We are taking a look at a phenomenal piece today. It's a special edition of the program. This was one of the best think pieces I have read in my career, not written by like Angelo, Code Villa, Thomas Sowell level of, of, of known intellect in our business. So this is about the highest praise I can give. And Lee Smith wrote this piece about the history of what he calls the China class, how our elites came to be more in favor of Chinese autocratic authoritarianism than American constitutional liberty. The name of the piece, The 30 Tyrants, it was published earlier this year in Tablet Magazine. Let's pick up where we left off, gentlemen, last hour. And he's discussing now the history, the genesis, if you will, of American Chinese normalizations. He talks about former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. This was his master play under uh, former President uh, Richard Nixon half a century ago. And he notes that Kissinger's geopolitical maneuver became the cornerstone of his historical legacy. It also made him a wealthy man, selling access to Chinese officials. In turn, Kissinger uh, pioneered the way for other former high-ranking policymakers to engage in their own foreign influence peddling operations, like William Cohen, defense secretary in the administration of Bill Clinton, who graced the way for China to gain permanent most favored nation trade status in 2000 and became a cornerstone of the World Trade Organization. The Cohen Group has two of its four overseas offices in China and includes a number of former top officials, including Trump's former defense secretary, James Mattis, who recently failed to disclose his work for the Cohen Group when he criticized the Trump administration's with us or against us approach to China in an editorial. The economic prosperity of U.S. allies and partners hinges on strong trade and investment relationships with Beijing, wrote Mattis, who is literally being paid by China for talking and taking exactly that position. Yet it's unlikely that Kissinger foresaw China as a cash cow for former American officials when he and President Richard Nixon traveled to the capital that Westerners then called Peking in 1972. The Chinese felt that Mao had to die before they could open up, says a former Trump administration official. Mao was still alive when Nixon and Kissinger were there, so it's unlikely they could have envisioned the sorts of reforms that began in 1979 under Xiaoping's leadership. But even in the 1980s, China wasn't competitive with the United States. It was only in the 1990s 
with the debates every year about granting China most favored nation status and trade, that China became a commercial rival and a lucrative partner. The chief publicist of the post-Cold War order was Francis Fukuyama, who in his 1992 book, The End of History, argued that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, Western liberal democracy represented the final form of government. What Fukuyama got wrong after the fall of the Berlin Wall wasn't his assessment of the strength of political forms. Rather, it was the depth of his philosophical model. He believed that with the end of the nearly half-century-long superpower standoff, the historical dialectic pitting conflicting political models against each other had been resolved. In fact, that dialectic just took another turn. Just after defeating communism in the Soviet Union, America breathed new life into the Communist Party that survived. And instead of Western democratic principles transforming the CCP, the American establishment acquired a taste for Eastern techno-autocracy. Tech became the anchor of the U.S.-China relationship, with CCP funding driving Silicon Valley startups. Thanks largely to the efforts of Dianne Feinstein, who after Kissinger became the second most influential official driving the U.S.-CCP relationship for the next 20 years. In 1978, as the newly elected mayor of San Francisco, Feinstein befriended Jing Zemin, then the mayor of Shanghai, and eventually the president of China. As mayor of America's tech epicenter, her ties to China helped the growing sector attract Chinese investment and made the states the world's third largest economy. Her alliance with Jiang also helped make her investor husband, Richard Bloom, a very wealthy man. As senator, she pushed for permanent most favored nation trade status for China by rationalizing China's human rights violations while her friend Jiang consolidated his power and became the Communist Party's general secretary by sending the tanks into Tiananmen Square. Feinstein defended him, quote, China had no local police, she said at the time. Hence the tanks. The senator from California reassuringly used that explanation. But that's the past. One learns from the past, you don't repeat it. And I think China has learned a lesson. If the past actually should have told Feinstein's audience in Washington a different story. The United States didn't trade with Moscow or allow Russians to make large campaign donations or enter into business partnerships with their spouses. Cold War American leadership understood that such practices would have opened the door to Moscow and allowed it to directly influence American politics and society in dangerous ways. Manufacturing our goods in their factories or allowing them to buy ours and ship them overseas would have made technology and intellectual property vulnerable. But it wasn't just about jeopardizing national security. It was also about exposing America to a system contradictory to American values. Throughout the period, America defined itself in opposition to how we conceived of the Soviets. Ronald Reagan was thought to be crass for referring to the Soviet Union as the evil empire, but trade and foreign policy from the end of World War II to 1990 reflected that this was actually the consensus position. Cold War American leadership didn't want the country coupled to a one-party authoritarian state. The industrialist Armin Hammer was famous because he was the American doing business with Moscow. 
His perspective was useful, not because of his unique insights into Soviet society, politics, and business culture that he often shared with the American media, but because it was understood that he was presenting the views that the Politburo wanted disseminated to an American audience. Today, America has thousands of Arm & Hammers, all making the case for their source of their wealth, prestige, and power. China. It started with Bill Clinton's 1994 decision to decouple human rights from trade status. He'd entered the White House promising to focus on human rights in contrast to George H.W. Bush. But after two years in office, he made an about face, quote, we need to place our relationship into a larger and more productive framework, end quote, he said. American human rights groups and labor unions were appalled. Clinton's decision sent a clear message, said then AFL-CIO President Lane Kirkland. No matter what America says about democracy and human rights, in the final analysis, profits, not people, matter most. Some Democrats, like then-Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell, were opposed, while Republicans like John McCain supported Clinton's move. The head of Clinton's National Economic Council, Robert E. Rubin, predicted that, quote, China will become an ever larger and more important trading partner. More than two decades later, the number of American industries and companies that lobbied against Trump administration measures attempting to decouple Chinese technology from its American counterparts is a staggering measure of how closely two rival systems that claim to stand for opposing sets of values and practices have been integrated. Listen to this. Companies like Ford, FedEx, Honeywell, as well as Qualcomm and other semiconductor manufacturers that fought to continue selling chips to Hawaii all exist with one leg in America and the other leg planted firmly in America's chief geopolitical rival. To protect both halves of their business, they soft sell the issue by calling China a competitor in order to obscure their role in boosting a dangerous rival. Nearly every American industry has a stake in China, from Wall Street, you have Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley, to hospitality, a Marriott hotel employee was fired when Chinese officials objected to his liking a tweet about Tibet. They all have learned to play by CCP rules. It's so pervasive, it's better to ask who's not tied to China says former Trump administration official General Robert Spaulding. Unsurprisingly, oh boy, the once reliably Republican U.S. Chamber of Commerce was in the forefront of opposition to Trump's China policies against not only proposed tariffs, but his call for American companies to start moving critical supply chains elsewhere, even in the wake of a pandemic. The National Defense Industrial Association recently complained of a law forbidding defense contractors from using Chinese technologies. Just about all contractors doing work with the federal government would have to stop, said a spokesperson for a trade group. Again, that is those are the defense contractors. You learned last year over 80% of your antibiotics come from China. We learned that in the COVID, when COVID yeah. started. Now we're being told that if we actually stopped using Chinese tech with our defense contractors, they'd all have to stop making our defense tech. No other superpower would do such a thing, by the way, and not, not in the history of this world. 
Does that mean we're not a superpower? It means we're maybe not one much longer. Even the Trump administration was split between China hawks and accommodationists, caustically referred to by the former as panda huggers. The majority of Trump officials were in the latter camp, panda huggers. Most notably, Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, a former Hollywood producer. While the film industry was the first and loudest to complain that China was stealing its intellectual property, it eventually came to partner with and appease Beijing. Studios are not able to tap into China's enormous market without observing CCP red lines. For example, in the upcoming sequel to Top Gun, Paramount offered to blur the Taiwan and Japan patches on Tom Cruise's Maverick jacket for the Chinese release of the film. But CCP censors insisted the patches not be shown in any version anywhere in the world. In the Trump administration, says former Trump advisor Spaulding, there was a very large push to continue unquestioned cooperation with China. On the other side was a smaller number of those who wanted to push back. Apple, Nike, and Coca-Cola even lobbied against the Forced Labor Prevention Act, which would have stopped the slavery of the Muslim sects in China. On Trump's penultimate day in office, his Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the U.S. has determined that the People's Republic of China is committing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, China targeting Muslims and members of other ethnic and religious minority groups. That makes a number of, Amer- of major American brands that use this forced labor, including, according to a 2020 Australian sur- survey, Nike, Adidas, Gap, Tommy Hilfiger, Apple, Google, Microsoft, General Motors, some of the largest companies not just in this country, in the world, they were all complicit in the genocide of these people. The idea that countries that scorn basic human and democratic rights should not be directly funded by American industry and given privileged access to the fruits of American government-funded research and technology that properly belongs to the American people is hardly a partisan idea and has or should have little to do with Donald Trump. But the historical record, record will show that the melding of the American and Chinese elites reached its apex during Trump's administration as the president made himself a focal point of the China class, which had adopted the Democratic Party as its main political vehicle. That's not to say establishment Republicans are out of the pro-China oligarchy. Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell's shipbuilder, billionaire father-in-law, James Chow, has benefited greatly from his relationship with the CCP, including college classmate, Jiang Zemin. Gifts from the Chow family have catapulted McConnell to only a few slots below Feinstein in the list of wealthiest senators. Riding the media tsunami of Trump hatred, the China class cemented its power within state institutions and security bureaucracies that have long been Democratic preserves and whose salary class inhabitants were eager not to be labeled as collaborators with the president they ostensibly served. Remember we heard earlier this year 
that the reasons scientists didn't want to come forward with their evidence of a lab leak for the virus mm -hmm. is they didn't want to appear to be on the same side as Donald Trump, right? right? Yeah. Icky. That's what this was just about. Accommodation with even the worst and most threatening aspects of the Chinese communist regime ongoing since the late 1990s was put on fast forward. Talk about how Nike made its sneakers in Chinese slave labor camps was no longer fashionable. News that China was stealing American scientific and military secrets, running large spy rings in Silicon Valley, and compromising congressmen like Eric Swalwell, paying large retainers to top Ivy League professors and well-organized programs of intellectual theft, or in any way posed a danger to its own people or to its neighbors, let alone the American way of life, were muted and dismissed as pro-Trump propaganda. The CIA openly protected Chinese efforts to undermine American institutions. CIA management bullied intelligence analysts to alter their assessment of Chinese influence and interference in our political process so it wouldn't be used to support policies they disagreed with, Trump's policies. It's no wonder that protecting America is not CIA management's most urgent equity. The technology that stores the agency's information is run by Amazon Web Services, owned by China's number one American distributor, Jeff Bezos. For those who actually understood what the Chinese were doing, partisanship was a distinctly secondary concern. Chinese behavior was authentically alarming, as was the seeming inability of core American security institutions to take it seriously. During the Bush and Obama years, the standard assessment was that the Chinese have no desire to build a blue water navy. It was inconvenient to their view. But China now has a third aircraft carrier in production. Loathing Trump proved the, their political excuse, but the American security and defense establishment had their own interest in turning a blind eye to China. 20 years of squandering men, money, and prestige on military engagements that began in George W. Bush's War on Terror have proved to be of little strategic value to the U.S. However, deploying Americans to provide security in Middle East killing fields has vastly benefited Beijing. Last month, Chinese energy giant Zen Hua took advantage of a weak Iraqi economy when it paid $2 billion for a five-year oil supply of 130,000 barrels a day. Should prices go up, that deal permits China to resell the oil on the market for a higher price. So your soldiers died in Iraq to provide crude to boost the Chinese economy. In Afghanistan, the large copper, metal, and mineral mines whose security American troops were ostensibly insured, ensuring they're all owned by Chinese companies. And because Afghanistan borders Xinjiang, Xin Jinping is worried that, quote, after the United States pulls troops out of Afghanistan, terrorist organizations positioned on the, front on the frontiers may quickly infiltrate into Central Asia, unquote. In other words... American troops are deployed abroad in places like Afghanistan, less to protect American interests than to provide security for China's Belt and Road Initiative. As late as the summer of 2019, Trump looked like he was headed to a second term in the White House.
Not only was the economy soaring and unemployment at record lows, he was rallying on the very field on which he'd chosen to confront his opponents. Trump's trade war with Beijing showed he was serious about forcing American companies to move their supply chains. In July, top American tech firms like Dell and Hewlett-Packard announced they were going to shift a large portion of their production outside of China. Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet said they were also planning to move some of their manufacturing elsewhere. It was exactly at this same time, late June, early July of 2019, that the residents of Wuhan, now listen to this, the residents of Wuhan began to fill the streets, angry, that officials responsible for the health and prosperity of the city's 11 million people had betrayed them. They were sick and feared getting sicker. The elderly gasped for breath. Marchers held up banners saying, we don't want to be poisoned. We just need a breath of fresh air. Parents worried for their children's lives. There was a fear that the ill had suffered permanent damage to their immune and nervous systems. Authorities censored social media accounts photos, and videos of the protests. And undercover policemen watched for troublemakers and detained the most vocal. With businesses forced shut, there was nowhere for protesters to hide. Some were carted off in vans. They had been warned by authorities. What sent the residents of Wuhan to the streets at the time wasn't COVID-19, which wouldn't begin its spread until the winter. In the early summer of 2019, what threatened public health in Wuhan was the plague of air pollution. This is hitherto untold part of the story of America's ghastly last year. To deal with the mounds of garbage poisoning the atmosphere, authorities in China planned to build a waste incineration plant, a plan that rightly alarmed the people who lived there. In 2013, five incineration plants in Wuhan were found to emit, to emit dangerous pollutants. Notice that all of your radical environmentalists all come after the U.S. and Western capitalism for polluting. They never, ever go after China. You ever notice that? I have. By far the worst polluter in the world. Other cities in China had similarly taken to the streets to protest against air pollution, each time sending waves of panic through CCP leadership, which was fearful of the slightest echo of the 1989 pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square let alone the prospect of unruly protests that were currently going on in Hong Kong. The way to keep unrest from going viral, the CCP had learned, was to quarantine it. The party has shown itself especially adept at neutralizing the country's minority populations, first the Tibetans and most recently the Turkish ethnic Muslim minority. Though mass quarantines and incarcerations, or they did this through mass quarantines and incarcerations, managed through networks of electronic surveillance that paved the way to prisons and slave labor camps. The country's 13.5 million Muslims are concentrated in Xinjiang, or East Turkestan, a region in northeast China roughly the size of Iran, and it's rich in oil, coal, and natural gas. Any potential disruptions of this constitutes a vital threat to Chinese interests. So when the, when, the, when the protest began, Xi told police, quote, prepare for a smashing, obliterating offensive. His deputies issued sweeping orders, round up everyone who should be rounded up. Officials who showed mercy were themselves detained. 
humiliated and held up as an example of disobeying the party's central leadership strategy. According to a November 2019 report in the New York Times, Chinese authorities were most worried about Muslim students returning home from school outside their province. The students had widespread social ties across the country and used social media, whose impact officials feared was widespread and difficult to eradicate. The task was to quarantine news of what was really happening inside these Muslim detention camps where they kept the rioters. When the students asked where their loved ones were and what had happened to them, officials were advised to tell students that their relatives had been infected by the virus of Islamic radicalism and must be quarantined and cured. But it wasn't just those most likely to carry out terrorist attacks, young men, who were subject to China's lockdown policy. According to documents, officials were told that even grandparents and family members who seemed too old to carry out violence, quote, could not be spared. So when a real virus hit in the fall of 2019, Chinese authorities already had established their protocol and they followed it quarantining not just prospective troublemakers, but everyone in Wuhan who they were already afraid of an uprising from, in the hope of avoiding an even larger public outcry than the one they had quelled in the same city just months before. There is a good reason why lockdowns, quarantining those who are not sick, had never been previously employed as a public health measure. The leading members of a city, state, or nation do not imprison their own unless they mean to signal that they are imposing collective punishment on the population at large. It had never been used before as a public health measure because it is widely recognized as an instrument of oppression. Let me stop there. Next segment will conclude this piece. Gentlemen, your thoughts on this section. Uh, once again, let me just say, hey, Hydra. I was struck during this whole thing, as I've stated, how frustrated I've been about this whole college football thing, how mad I've been. Why? How could I have thought anything like out of football or Hollywood or or anything really stood a chance? Because this, what we're talking about, is the mother box. Mm. This has defined, we're talking about the, the 30, 40 tyrants. We're talking about circles of elites. They're, they're all drinking the same Kool-Aid. We can't expect any of our institutions to be aspiring to anything other than this. They've been drinking this mother's milk forever. We are definitely, if we expect otherwise, uh, nostalgia, d- d- pointless. We are, we're Puritans now. And we may ultimately have to become pilgrims and revolutionaries as well. But there's nothing, there's nothing that nostalgia uh, is rooted out of in reality almost anywhere anymore. Why would we expect college football to be a place where we park our sense of true Americana. True Americana, sadly now, is what Steve is talking about. It is a selling of the soul. It's incredibly uh, well said, Todd. And um, as I told you 
you know, after after reading this entire piece, the first time you sent it to us, uh, Steve, there's just this pit in yes. my stomach. Yes. Reading this, and I think there should be, if you're listening to this conversation, just a growing pit. And the reason why there's that pit this time for me, I don't know where the elites in this country start. I don't know where the elites in this country end and the political class in this country begins and the political class in this country ends and China begins and China ends. It's, it's all one cabal. It's one, all, one, one incestuous cabal full of people who look at folks like you and I and everyone listening to this show Look at people like us and say, icky, ew, racist, you had it coming. We talk about the ruling class resenting people like us, hating people like us. It's because, it's because we're the only thing. We, we, they cannot make their money without people like us, without their rulees or the people they rule. Um, but the more we wake up to that, uh, the more it ticks them off because we're, we're threatening their bottom line at the end of the day. There's two things separating you and me from being where the Chinese people are. Our faith in God and our guns. Give up neither one of them. Ever, no matter what. Straight, no chaser. Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. back here for our final segment on a special edition here of the Steve Day Show. And again, we just can't say enough good things about this incredibly thought-provoking, insightful, brilliant piece by Lee Smith earlier this year for Tablet Magazine on the 30 tyrants and the creation of government class, a China class within our government of elites, both in the public and private sector. We've shared a lot of this piece with you. There, there is far more detail about how uh, what happened with coronavirus China laid the groundwork for with previous threatened uprisings in Wuhan so they already had the protocols and the precedents set I want to go ahead and skip to the conclusion if you guys don't mind all right so that we've got time to discuss the piece as a whole on the back end in November a video circulated on social media purporting to document a public speech given by the head of a Chinese think tank close to the Beijing government Trump waged a trade war against us, he told a Chinese audience. Why couldn't we handle him? Why is it that between 1992 and 2016, I believe we played this video on the show, by the way. We did. Um, why is it that between 1992 and 2016, we always resolved issues within the U.S.? 
it's because we had people up there. In America's core circle of power, we have some old friends. The appreciative crowd laughed along with him. During the last three to four decades, he continued, we took advantage of America's core circle. As I said, Wall Street has a very profound influence. We used to rely, we used to rely heavily on them. Problem is, they have been declining since 2008 with the implosion. Most importantly, after 2016, Wall Street couldn't control Trump. In the U.S.-China trade war, they tried to help. My friends in the U.S. told me that they tried to help, but they could not. But now with Biden winning the election, the traditional elites, political elites, the establishment, they have a very close relationship with Wall Street. Those are all quotes, by the way. Is it true the small fortune that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has earned for simply speaking in front of Wall Street audiences is a matter of public record, but she had hard words for Beijing at her confirmation hearing earlier this year, even criticizing the CCP for, quote, horrendous human rights abuses against the Muslims there. But the, res but the resumes of Biden's picks for top national security posts tell a different story. Incoming Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken worked at a Beltway firm called West Exec, which scrubbed its work on behalf of the CCP from its website shortly before the election, clearly because they were so proud of it. Longtime Biden Secretary aide Colin Call tapped for the number three spot at the Pentagon, worked at an institute at Stanford University that is twinned with Peking, Peking University, a school run by a former CCC, CCP spy chief, spy chief and has long been seen as a security risk by Western intelligence services. As head of the Center for American Progress's think tank, Biden's pick for the director of the Office of Management and Budget, Neera Tandon, teamed up with the U.S.-China exchange organization created as a front to, quote, co-opt and neutralize the sources of potential opposition to the policies and authority of the CCP and influence overseas Chinese communities, foreign governments, and other actors to take actions or adopt positions supportive of Beijing, end quote. Biden's special assistant for presidential personnel, Thomas Zimmerman, was a fellow at the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, flagged by Western intelligence agencies for its ties to, Chinese, to China's Ministry of State Security. It continues. U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield gave a 2019 speech at a Chinese government-funded Confucius Institute in Savannah, Georgia, where she praised China's role in promoting good governance, gender equity, and the rule of law in Africa. I see no reason why China cannot share in those values, she said. In fact, China is in a unique position to spread these ideals given its strong footprint on the continent. The family of the incoming commander-in-chief was reportedly given an interest-free loan of $5 million by, a bit by businessmen with ties to the Chinese military, while Biden's son Hunter called his Chinese business partner, quote, the spy chief of China. The reason that the press and social media censored pre-election reports of Hunter Biden's alleged ties to the CCP was not to protect him. $5 million is less than what Bezos has made every hour during the course of the pandemic. No, for the pro-China oligarchy, the point of getting Joe Biden elected was to protect themselves. Reports claiming the Biden administration will continue the Trump's administration's aggressive efforts to roll back China's technology industry are misdirection. The new administration is loaded with lobbyists for the American tech industry who are determined to get the U.S.-China relationship back on track. 
Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, was formerly on the executive council to TechNet, the trade group that lobbies on behalf of Silicon Valley in Washington. Biden's White House counsel is Steve Reschetti, whose brother Jeff was hired to lobby for Amazon shortly after the election. Janet Yellen says that China is clearly our most strategic competitor, but the pro-China oligarchy is not competing with the country from which it draws wealth, power, and prestige. Chinese autocracy is their model. Consider the deployment of more than 20,000 U.S. Armed Forces members throughout Washington, D.C. to provide security for an inauguration of a president who is rarely seen in public in the wake of a sporadically violent protest march that was cast as an insurrection and a coup, the removal of opposition voices from social media, along with the removal of competing social media platforms themselves, the nascent efforts to keep the Trump-supporting half of America from access to health care, credit, legal representation, education, and employment with the ultimate goal of redefining protest against the policies of the current administration as, quote, domestic terrorism. These are all Chinese tactics. What seems clear is that Biden's inauguration marks the hegemony of an American oligarchy that sees its relationship with China as a shield and sword against their own countrymen. Like Athens' 30 tyrants, they are not simply contemptuous of a political system that recognizes the natural rights of all citizens that are endowed by their creator. They despise in particular the notion that those they rule have the same rights that they do. Witness their newfound respect for the idea that speech should only be free for the enlightened few who know how to use it properly. Or properly. Like Critias and the pro-Sparta faction. The new American oligarchy believes that democracy's failures are proof of their own exclusive right to rule, and they are happy to rule in partnership with a foreign power that will help them destroy their own countrymen. What does history teach us about this moment? The bad news is that the 30 tyrants exiled notable Athenian Democrats and confiscated their property while murdering an estimated 5% of the Athenian population. The good news is that their heinous rule lasted for less than a year. All right. Big picture. What do you think? Well, once again, as always, hail Hydra. The big picture is that I, uh, as I, when I read it the first time, Steve, I was just hammered because of the setting I was in when I read it by my continuous, the continuous psychological and emotional battle I'm having with the future I thought I was building towards up until very recently and the future I see existing now. Steve, when you sent this to me, I was in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon, and I was sitting by myself in this brand new shiny stadium mm-hmm. waiting for my daughter to run mm-hmm. uh, and there was hundreds of people there but they're v- spread out in this so I'm, I'm sitting by myself and it was very surreal i did not expect you, you said do you i need you guys to read this thing yeah no problem i had the time I, I wouldn't have read it in that moment had i known how it was going to hammer me because it it looked it felt like I was sitting in a mirage. It felt like I was sitting in the trap that Thanos brought 
some of the Avengers mm-hmm. into before he snapped, and mm-hmm. he he showed that it was all burnt destruction, and he had already taken what he wanted. It felt just like that. I was sitting in the gated community I'm talking about, this beautiful thing. I was sitting here in the gated community watching uh, my daughter uh, do something um, extraordinary, aspiring to something uh, that now we're celebrating uh, ostensibly the Olympics for. But uh, is it all? Is it all a lie? Is it all meant to distract us from realizing the long con that we have been under for some long because if we wake up and realize it it's total war mm-hmm. i you've described it as the punch in the gut all of those things i i'm um we that's <laughs> funny a couple weeks ago on the show aaron uh you know pulled one out of his keister for three non-political questions about what takes your breath away what what one moment in time takes your breath away yeah, this column does it. Hmm. Aaron? So, atop the U, I, it, that, that column would just, that column would be crushing enough. That column, I should say, is crushing enough with its conclusion. It would be suffocating, though, if not for its conclusion. We have to accept, we have to accept that times of pain are likely on the way. If we do not cede our God-given rights to the system, the spirit of the age, I think it's going to be beneficial for us along the lines of what our friend Jesse Kelly says in his running commentary about the communists. They have right now, within our culture, within our system, within our power centers, they have virtual hegemony. Much like China has virtual hegemony in its geographic region. We have to accept, likely, that times of pain are coming. However, as with the 30 tyrants... Their rule lasted a very, in the grand scheme of things, especially in ancient times, lasted lasted a very, very short amount of time. So I think in our system, though, there are two, two major observations that I came away with this, practically speaking. You should be crushed by this, yes. Pit in your stomach, yes. But there are two things. There's, there's, it's one thing to be victimized. It's another thing to be a victim as a state of being. Understand, understand that all of us, to varying degrees, by the players that we just talked about on the global, national, sometimes local scale, we have all, to varying degrees, be, been victimized by this incestuous globalist relationship. To what degree? depends but we are not victims accepting that there might be hard times on the way does not mean that we are necessarily laying down because that's not what it means it means having a clear head and a clear conscience and a clear path 
at least mentally to go down when those hard times come because you're expecting it. So there's a difference between being victimized and being the victim. Secondly, I think if there's any hope, if there's any hope at all, we've been beating this drum, we've been beating this drum all year. Apart from revival, and this actually, I think, happens with revival. Let's just be honest with that. When we're saying apart from revival, we're really talking about things that must happen with revival, spiritually, in our country. Uh, we've got to divest. We've got to divest um, from, from the federal level, from the national level, and take the fights locally. We might be able to balkanize. We might be able to have enclaves where we can shield ourselves to some degree from this type of thing. It might, I mean, it might get really, really bad. It might get so bad, in fact, I could foresee a scenario within 15 to 20 years at the rate things are decelerating and decaying in Western American culture. Things like, things that we just take for granted here in America, especially here in the heartland, like, I don't know, a roof over our heads or mouths, or food, <laughs> uh, and, and being able to provide, those things could very well be threatened. Maybe not even in 15 to 20 years. Recognize what's happening. Pull closer to those who actually agree with you. There is strength in numbers, and go exceedingly local. Dare the 30 tyrants to provoke you. Because at the end of the day, as you said at the end of the last segment, we still have our faith in God and we still have our guns. I want to close this out by stating something that will make some of you upset, but I think needs to be said. One of the things that is pointed out in this article is that the provocations of Donald Trump caused these groups of people to align together and form this fifth column, if you will. But it also points out he really didn't do anything substantive because of divisions in his own administration to truly dent them. In other words, he provoked them, but then ultimately didn't punish them. And his provoking catalyzed them to then come after our way of life with rapidity and at a pace that they were probably still several years away from accomplishing organically on their own. Here's what that means. Mere rhetoric, or owning the libs, or a pithy tweet, or verbal takedowns, we're never going to cut it, but we're like way beyond that now. Girls for patriots never attack. When yeah, yeah. Don't kill, don't man. show up. Don't show up to the OK Corral man with anything less than a Smith and Wesson. All right, and 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 you are prepared to use it. Okay. And this isn't. This isn't. Art of the deal ain't going to cut it, man. You better be willing to go to the mattresses for your virtues, values, traditions of your culture and your country up against this. These people are crusaders, not gangsters. They're trying to win an argument with history. You're only going to out-crusade them. You're never going to out-barter, out-bargain them. You're not going to outsmart them. You're going to have to defeat them with a similar belief system, with, with superior, I'm sorry, with a superior belief system, with superior conviction. Rhetoric won't do it. 
conviction will be needed. That'll do it for our very special edition here of the show. Until the next time here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.